I would say that's the one thing I do lament about. Like you get so deep in a hole, like I'm so deep in a pantry hole, you know, where I'm like, can't, I don't have the capacity, mental capacity almost. I feel sometimes for, you know, what used to really be exposure to the big ideas and expose. I mean, I, you know, obviously I, in the community of entrepreneurship, like there are a lot of people doing amazing things, but I think it was so important early on to be exposed to big ideas and big thinking and big problems with big solutions. And those kinds of things, I think, help to cultivate at least that like dreamer mindset that I think can be so helpful when starting, you know, an entrepreneurial venture and just not, again, like we're talking about not limiting yourself and really seeing the world of possibilities and being able to feel like, oh, I can go after some of these opportunities. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. That's better products, better brands, and better leadership for a better world. You can join our online community right now, where we're going further, faster together at community.evolvecpg.com. Join us. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, sustainable brand design agency, helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On this episode, we're speaking with Caitlin Magenthal, founder of Pulp Pantry, about identifying a problem to solve, asking for help along the way, and leaning into opportunities, even if they're intimidating. Hi there, my name is Caitlin Magenthal. I'm the founder of Pulp Pantry. At Pulp Pantry, we're transforming scraps to snacks by utilizing overlooked resources in our food system or upcycled ingredients to create nutritious versions of everyone's favorite snack foods made more sustainable and, of course, better for you. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me, Caitlin. I'm super excited to have you on the show. I've tried your products, love them. Nice and healthy, but also tasty, which I love. But before we dive more into pulp and what you're up to now, I'm curious, I was poking around on your LinkedIn and saw that you kind of university studies were around kind of the environment and sustainability. What drew you into that in the first place? Yeah, I think, you know, it goes back to eighth grade, which is which is a long time ago. But um, yeah. in eighth grade, I saw an inconvenient truth with my mom. And that was, she was kind of like, you know, we should go, let's go watch this, you know, this new film. And it was really interesting because I think before then, I, I had always had an interest in science. Like I was definitely the person that loved my science classes in middle school. But it was funny because that was the first exposure I had to any sort of kind of discussion on climate change and really what was happening in the world with greenhouse gas emissions. And it just really struck me, I think, as, you know, a person that was going into high school and, and kind of contemplating like where I wanted to put more emphasis on my studies. I think, you know, it really drove me on that path of I really want to find a way to get involved in kind of either communicating climate change to the general public or contributing to science behind, you know, what's happening and and how can we really prevent kind of catastrophe from the destruction that comes with, you know, the change in climate. So it was really interesting just to have that early exposure. And I think, you know, sophomore year of high school, I remember going to a woman in science day and the whole discussion was around the fact that we don't have enough women representing kind of in the field of the sciences. And so we actually went to one of the national laboratories, Argonne National Laboratory, and kind of heard from female scientists who really wanted to encourage like the next generation to get involved in the field. And that was, again, to me, like this, you know, another draw, I guess, to the sciences and thinking about, you know, how can I contribute to environmental science in a bigger way? So really, that's what got me into, at least in college, looking at environmental studies programs or environmental science programs, and, you know, where that might be the best fit to kind of take it forward. That's cool. It's good to know that documentaries work, you know, inspiring (laughs) people to move forward in some way. Yeah, Al Gore. That gives me hope for all the future generations, too, because like, there's still great documentaries coming out like Kiss the Ground and stuff that will hopefully inspire the next next generation, right? (laughs) Cannot recommend the Kiss the Ground documentary enough too. And I mean, a lot of documentaries, of course, about food we eat and how that impacts the climate. And that's actually, I mean, that's another thing that, you know, I was so influenced by some of those films that even went vegan. So I definitely happen to be like one of those very, those people who are very influenced by... (laughs) 
by the documentaries. Nice. Yeah, I know a lot of people that end up in sustainability-focused work in their career probably had some sort of passion for environment or social justice or something like that going into school. But not all of us had any business training, (laughs) you know, like when we decided to start a business. So it's interesting to see like different paths and how we get into it. Some people decide to go off and get an MBA. For you, it looked like right around the time you were wrapping up your bachelor's um, in environmental Mm -hmm. studies, you, I don't know how long the program is, but it looked like you wrapped up around the same year going through the food business school program. So did you come up with the idea that you really wanted to focus on food while you were in university and then just jump right into that food business school program right after university or how how did that overlap? So the food business school was amazing because I had graduated from USC and I, I had already prepared kind of this nonprofits class presentation on, you know, the problem of food waste and yet talking about how some of the most nutritious resources in our food system were going to waste at the greatest rates. And yet we have this you know, problem on the other side of it, which is that Americans, nine and 10 of us don't eat our servings of fruits, vegetables, or fiber. And so I presented this in the nonprofits class, like how do we connect these overlooked resources to make hopefully fruits, vegetables, and fiber more accessible to more Americans? So presenting that in my nonprofits class really I started getting connected to some resources like mentorship from, there were a couple nonprofits locally that really were addressing the food insecurity issue and then also getting connected to my university incubator. And so I had a couple of professors that were like, this is a great idea. We need to see this through. Like you need to do something about this. And it was through kind of going to the incubator program. I actually went and got my business incorporated through that program for free. And then once I got my business incorporated and I kind of decided, oh, this is, I'm ready to take this on full time. That's when I really was looking for resources because I was a newcomer to the food industry. I hadn't done a, you know, I hadn't done a business degree in in school. (laughs) So I really felt like I was kind of coming into a new, a completely new field. And so I was very proactive about searching for what resources are out there to learn from seasoned mentors in these spaces, but like really do a deep dive in the industry. Food business school was so helpful. I mean, I remember getting like packets of information on margins and distributors and like, how do you build your brand identity or talk to like creatives about building your brand identity. So that was a really good foundation. And then of course, going to trade shows after that, you know, that all kind of just compiled and built at least the network and kind of understanding that I needed, I think just to get started. But of course it's been a long journey and many things I would do differently looking back this, you know, where I am today, (laughs) but that's all part of the path. And I, I have no regrets about any of it. Yeah, that's cool. So how long was the food business school program? It was only like, I think it was a crash course for like five days or something up in the Bay Area. Maybe it was three days even. It was really short, but it was, you know, full days of classes taught by different industry mentors. And then of course, we kept in touch with the mentors afterwards to just understand like, you know, I mean, just to essentially ask questions going forward. So it was really impactful, honestly, and really helpful. Um, And I still use some of those materials today. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you got a lot out of it for only a handful of days. So they really packed it in. That's great. I remember it being like the biggest investment at the time though. You know, it was like a couple grand or something. And I was like, I used like my incubator (laughs) grant money to do it. And I was like so nervous about it. But I honestly, I think stuff like that, it's like you got to like surround yourself with good coaches and mentors. And, you know, sometimes if doing a crash course that (laughs) that costs a couple grand, but it's going to save you a bunch in the long run. It was worth it. <laughs> yeah, totally. I did the same thing when I was starting my agency, Modern Species. I landed in Madison, Wisconsin area after traveling for a year and kind of came up with the idea of what I wanted to do. But I didn't have the background or the knowledge or know yeah. how to do legal stuff or accounting or anything. So the UW of Madison had these small business courses that you could take, or it was like a kind of outside of the university. And I think it was like a couple months if you do the short version, but if you complete the program and submit a business plan, then they give you a discount or or refund your tuition, which is cool. I I, I didn't go all the way through it, but some people I know did. But it was just worth, just like you said, it was totally worth dumping the money and getting the crash course and all the things you didn't know that you didn't know (laughs) so that That, you can at least have kind of a framework to start from. And then that just like kickstarts your learning from there, right? You just kind of go and read books and talk to 
other entrepreneurs or talk to get mentors, get a community of people who are trying to do the same thing you're doing and just kind of grow together, which I know I missed that during COVID, just having those little kind of micro communities where you're just sharing knowledge and whatnot. So I'm glad that we're, um, but programs like that, that exist out there. I mean, it's just like, it is building the network, I think is honestly one of the more valuable parts that come out of it. It's just like being surrounded by, you know, like-minded people who are going to be your peers growing their own companies or whatever else. So it's great. Absolutely. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I've always thought about going back for an MBA is just to like have that camaraderie and, and dig in and, you know, for intellectual curiosity, but also just the cool people that you'd meet along the way and get to support yeah. each other and build stuff. But I mean, I think about doing that, going back to school for ethnobotany, you know, something so random. Oh, I'm like, nice. <laughs> I just want to do, <laughs> yeah. I want to like just go just, curious, uh, yeah. quench my, quench my thirst for just, you know, useless knowledge, but also to be totally. around other people who, you know, have some similar interests. And I, I definitely, so I'm with you on the same page where I'm like, going back to school, I, I still think is something that I'm like, you know, one day I'd love to do it. Yeah, totally. I've seen some people who are far in their careers, like they've been doing what they've been doing for 30 years and their business is on kind of autopilot at that stage. Yeah. And they finally decide, you know what, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get that MFA and study painting, or I'm going to go finally like take courses in writing and write a book or, you know, like whatever. It's like when you finally say, okay, I can get off this treadmill that is my career for a little bit and just go yeah. explore my intellectual curiosity. So exactly. someday I'm looking forward to that. Just go and study all the things, whether or not they actually help you in the moment. <laughs> exactly. I love that. Well, I'm glad to hear that that food business school was helpful. I'll recommend it to some other folks. So out of curiosity, though, you went through the ink. You were aware of food waste in your kind of undergrad you went through an incubator, it sounded like, and then you went through food business school. Like, mm -hmm. Where in there did the kind of the clarity of where you were going to focus? Like, first of all, there's many different ways to solve food waste. And you decided to focus on a, yeah. a consumer packaged goods brand. And then even within there, there's so many different things you could do, right? But you ended up identifying yeah. this opportunity of pulp. So did you kind of have a strong idea of what you wanted to do? with pulp and then these kind of incubators and business pro or the food business school helped you figure out how to do it? Or did you go through those programs with just the general idea that you wanted to solve something in food waste and through those programs, yeah. you came out the other end with pulp? I think, you know, the interesting thing was I had the, the impetus for the idea and actually like what opened me up to kind of understanding that there was this larger issue of food processing and manufacturing waste and, and byproducts was actually because I was at a friend's house and I saw her juice a carrot. And I was like, oh my God, is this what happens when you juice a carrot? It was the tiniest amount of liquid in all of these handfuls <laughs> of pulp. And so that was actually, you know, starting there, like at the kind of just at a friend's house, seeing that. And then the next day I just had this idea and I was like, what is every other juicery in LA? I mean, in LA at the time, that was like the thing was juicing. And so I called up all these local juiceries and I was like, hey, what are you doing with your pulp? And, you know, they're like, who's this crazy girl calling about that? Pulp? But, they, <laughs> but they honestly were like, you know, this is a big pain point for us. We actually don't have a way to sustainably dispose of this item we're sending to the landfill. And I was like, oh my God. Okay. So, wow. you know, I, I had like 10 conversations essentially that were like that. And that was what kind of became the project that I presented in this class was like, hey, and I actually brought samples. So I went to a, ju a local juicery on campus and I said, I'm doing this class project. I'm presenting on this idea, got some samples of their pulp, developed some like carrot cake muffins or, you know, beet brownies. Whoa, and I nice. presented those with our project in the class. And the whole idea was, hey, like, you know, I had talked to like school food service managers at LAUSD and I was asking them, like, what is your budget for breakfast or for lunch? Because another part of it was I was working at an urban garden at the same time as this all was happening. And at the urban garden, it was attached to an elementary school and it was a title one elementary school, which meant kids were on the free breakfast or free lunch program. So kids were coming into class and they were eating like Twinkies or Cheetos. And, you know, when I was looking at the school lunches that were provided, it was like French fries and pizza sauce counted as your <laughs> daily vegetable. And so yeah. the teachers in the garden, we were all like very, you know, I mean, it was like a lot of people who had this background of like passion in social justice and passion really in, I mean, truly it was all about the kids, right? And connecting the kids back to eating healthier because we did cooking classes along with teaching kids how to grow their own produce. And 
we saw so much change happen during the course work that these kids were going through at the garden where it's like all of a sudden they were exposed to eating fresh vegetables and all of a sudden they had these kind of tools and recipes to take home to cook those vegetables or even to like access fresh produce grown in the garden and take that home to their family. So it was really one of those things where I was like, you know, this is crazy. And I was like, how can we make the better? I honestly tackled it first with like, how do I work with LAUSD to offer better school food for kids and kind of come up with creative ways that we can use more vegetables in these like breakfast and lunch offerings. And of course, once I learned about the budgets that LAUSD had for every kid, I was like, that's impossible. (laughs) You know, it's like, oh my God. So it kind of took, I mean, honestly, it took me on this different path. And today I feel like really what influenced me the most about kind of, instead of going this school food service route, obviously, which I still would love to go back to one day, it kind of influenced me. I was really looking at brands like Patagonia and just thinking a lot about how building a brand in this day and age has so much of a cultural impact, maybe more so even than like some of the nonprofit or advocacy work that I was doing because our budgets were so restricted by the amount of funding that we raised and the grant funding was really competitive. And so I was kind of thinking about it. I was like, you know, if I start a business in a brand in this space, maybe that has a better cultural impact because at the end of the day, food waste really, the biggest portion of it does happen at home. And so I do feel like, you know, although maybe what I'm doing right now with building a brand, it's not the best way to tackle food waste as a problem, but it's hopefully a really good way to, you know, bring an idea forward and shift the culture a bit by, you know, whether it's offering resources with consumers on, sharing the education behind really why food waste is such a big problem, sharing resources for how people can fight food waste at home, and then creating a way for people to buy into kind of their value system with a product that, and with a platform brand that essentially will create many products that tackle the issue from different angles. So yeah, I guess, you know, it's a roundabout way of of just saying that I think you know, logically, like sometimes it's interesting just because obviously as a founder and as a person, like my biggest interest became how do I create a brand that's super compelling for, you know, modern day consumers versus like maybe thinking, how do I start? How do I tackle the issue of food waste in the biggest way possible? Because if I really thought about it that way, probably the best thing to do would be to start like a composting facility or, you know, you <laughs> yeah, know like, totally. you know, there's probably a lot of, like you said, a lot of different ways that that issue could be tackled as at a greater, you know, capacity than what we're doing now. But I, I definitely, I think where we landed is it's a fun space to be in and I feel like as a founder and, you know, it speaks most to my interests, I guess. And, and that's really how we ended up here. Nice. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. To, uh, on that last note about, you know, starting a compost facility versus building a brand or or whatever, I think that's part of the trick of being an entrepreneur, right? Is you've always got these, these yeah. multiple kind of things you've got to balance in your mind. Like you have to do something that makes business sense in some way. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to keep doing it. But you also have to ideally do something you're passionate about because being an entrepreneur is a really difficult journey. And if you're not passionate about it, you're just going to give up too soon, most likely. Exactly. But then there's also for purpose-driven entrepreneurs, there's this idea of impact. And Mm -hmm. you you can make a small local impact by doing awesome things in your one community and like maybe just hyper-focusing on that one school you were working at and like making sure that those specific kids have the best meal possible. And maybe that impact could scale by building a a replicable model that other schools could go for. But, But then there's the flip side of like, okay, well, instead of focusing local, what if I focus national or global yeah. and what kind of impact could I make there? And there's just all these considerations, you know, flowing through your 100%. mind that, that kind of pull you in different directions. Cause you might have passion for your local community, but you also realize maybe that's not the best place for me to spend my time. So it is like, you feel like pulled in so many different directions, I think as an entrepreneur. I know. And if there's, I mean, it's interesting cause I do feel like creating a brand, hopefully that's, you know, sustainable and profitable, like allows you to kind of Again, it's just finding ways to kind of, I guess, innovate within your own space and tackle kind of different sides of the the problem within the same business or a related business or whatnot. So there's a lot of flexibility and I think creativity that can happen within the kind of brand building space. And I think 
you know, that's a really powerful thing. And I love it because it's like the, a good example is, you know, Patagonia going out and creating their own documentaries and, you know, sponsoring their own projects that are more focused on advocacy and activism and things like that, where I just, I feel like those, you know, those little like kind of pieces that you build along the way can, and Dr. Bronner's, I mean, they have a really strong advocacy and activism arm as well, like advocating for policy, actually investing in, you know, in kind of lobbyist groups and whatnot. So it's like, it's really cool to figure out, I think, and look at these models of businesses that have kind of existed in an area where they're trying to create change and have actually, you know, not only successfully sold a brand and products, but have kind of deepened the relationship with some of the core issues that they're tackling too. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that note too, about the power of building a brand to influence culture, right? Because I've done a ton of nonprofit work throughout my career as well. I love nonprofits that they're able to hyper just hyper focus on making an impact and don't have to satisfy, you know, shareholders and all this other kind of stuff. However, <laughs> I find, or at least my theory is that you can do so much more good by building a sustainable, socially responsible business or building a brand than you can by working in the nonprofit space purely because nonprofits like the model itself is unsustainable, like typically, because they're reliant on handouts. They're like, you have to go get donations and sponsors and whatever. And that they spend, you know, a huge chunk of their time just trying to figure out how they're going to get that money. And therefore, maybe not enough time working on the actual cause itself. Yes. Whereas if you have a purpose-driven, mission-driven brand, almost everything you do will be in interest of that mission And by having a product that you're selling, you're funding the work, like you just mentioned with Patagonia, you know, they sell better products, but that profits from that also fund other initiatives like advocacy or documentaries or whatever else. And then lastly, you mentioned also culture change. Like there's very few nonprofits that are really going to shift culture just because, you know, oftentimes nonprofits don't have the money to like build great brands and do influential yeah. documentaries or whatever. And, and that's not always the case, right? But a lot of them just aren't going to have that kind of influence. Whereas brands, part of what's great about their power to make change is that you can create brands that are really aspirational or exciting, or you know, they pull people in and make people want to be part of that movement better because that's kind of what they need to do. You know, They're basically a, a marketing company to some degree. So Anyway, so it's like the best of all worlds. That's why I love kind of purpose-driven business spaces because you can make tons of impact and do it in a sustainable way. You know, your work funds itself. I've worked in the social enterprise space too. I worked at a place called Ellie Kitchen and it was a mentor of mine who started DC Central Kitchens, like huge food waste activists, but really focused on, you know, culinary job trainings to take people out of recidivism and essentially give them essentially the first job for a lot of them that they'd ever held after being, you know, maybe in in our jail system for 40 plus years and never having a driver's license come. Like, it was just really crazy to see the impact that program had. And we were always trying to figure out, and really what I was tasked to help with was figuring out our revenue model. Like, how do we support the amazing work we're doing with the culinary job training program And with essentially like, I mean, yeah, with essentially a business that's kind of going to function that and be the engine behind it. So we were able to take grant money, but we were also, of course, like trying to figure out how do we become a profitable venture so that we don't have to rely on grant funding. And it's really hard because, yeah, so many resources do go to the like kind of activities that maybe don't drive the revenue underneath it all. And, but I think there are really cool, successful businesses, also like Grayston Bakery that kind of follow that more of a nonprofit, for-profit hybrid. So I feel like there's kind of more of that coming into play. It's just, it's really interesting because yeah, it's obviously, it's obviously not easy to marry both all the time, but I think that's the shift that's happening, at least in sustainability is that more and more consumers are looking for sustainable brands and products and so now, you know, we're, we're being rewarded for brands that are truly, you know, mission-based. There's a lot of, I think, things that are shifting, obviously, in the consumer landscape that are hopefully going to keep that path going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, I think some nonprofit world is starting to get 
smarter and create more sustainable revenue streams and so on and so forth. And and there are some models that work, you know, if you're funded by a really wealthy foundation and you don't have to go out and fundraise all the time, then great. That's awesome. Just go do the mission work. So, you know, not knocking nonprofits as a whole. I'm just saying there's so much power in building a business that's designed to do good and can fund itself as well. Yeah, exactly. So let's flip back to Pulp more specifically. So you're launched about seven years ago, but before we get to the now, for other kind of entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs or people kind of just getting going, what was your most surprising hurdle to getting the company off the ground? I think the hurdle, honestly, a lot of it for me has been building the, I think building the team around obviously like a great brand because in a lot of ways you, you know, being a newcomer in the space, you maybe don't have all these buyer relationships or a broker network or a distributor relationship. And so it's kind of been building all of those pieces of like, who are really going to be the stakeholders that are kind of ensuring our success? And what are the programs and things that we can participate in to help build that network? So that's been really where I've spent the bulk of my time is like, honestly, capacity building for the company and thinking about like who are the people that we need in all the spots where I have blind spots? Because obviously, like you know, I love the supplier development and thinking about product development, and you know, but at the same time, like I need help from a professional product developer and R and D guy who's, and you know, you have to tap on people who have that industry experience and who understand co-packing and who've done salty snacks before or whatever else it is, and so building up the network to find those great referrals to candidates that can be in every little bucket of the business that really will ensure success. I mean, that takes a ton of time and energy. And so I think one thing, you know, that I like looking back on the journey, I mean, it's something that I would have probably invested a lot of more time in upfront is just, you know, going to more conferences, going to more trade shows. It really, it took me a while to figure out like, what are the shows that I need to go to? And I was talking to an entrepreneur the other week and he, you know, he reminded me of myself because he was asking me, about a couple shows that he was going to. And I was like, no, 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 here are the big ones you have to go to. And it's like, he had never heard of them, you know? And I was like, this is, it is pretty crazy. Like how much all the knowledge can be so secluded into kind of these like, yeah, it's like a network of people who have been in the industry and they'll obviously give you the best referrals and recommendations. But sometimes you forget that like, you got to ask people for help and got to ask people for their suggestions because otherwise you're just a newcomer in the space trying to figure it out yourself and you can save yourself a lot of time and energy. So I feel like that's, you know, the one thing looking back where I'm like, man, I wish I had probably like found a couple mentors that I could have really asked, like, you know, where do I go to get the resource base? But other than that, I mean... Yeah, once getting started and once having kind of the right people, I mean, it's all about, yeah, it really is all about the people. It's about like, do you have a great broker that knows the retailers? Do you know, do you have a great distributor that, you know, has your back and can distribute the product? Do you have, you know, a great co packer that's going to help you manufacture? Like, you just, it's getting all those pieces in place. So that was definitely the biggest, I think, the biggest thing in getting started that, you know, as a newcomer took a lot of work. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because. If you're trying to scale a company and can't do everything yourself, then you need to be able to rely on other people. And it can be difficult to find the people with the right experience and totally get what you're trying to do and have connections and know the industry and so on and so forth. And even when you do find those people, when you're a small growing company, how do you afford them? (laughs) You know, like, so it is kind of, that's kind of a constant difficult thing is no matter how much you lock in your product or the equipment that you're purchasing or the processes, there's still people behind it all, managing it all, driving it forward, helping you innovate, helping take stuff off your plate or helping grow in areas that you wouldn't even have known to grow in. But, you know, you got to kind of find that the right way to attract the people and retain the people, which I think is also a benefit of being mission driven, right? It's because these days, at least, more and more people are attracted to not just making a paycheck, but actually making an impact with that paycheck. So I think these B Corps, you know, benefit driven kind of social impact driven companies are, are going to have much more success in these like great resignation kind of eras of people deciding they want to kind of change what they're doing with their life. So I'm hopeful (laughs) in that regard. I mean, yeah, it all goes back. It's just, it's all like, it's all social capital in a lot of ways. It's, 
but that's the fun part of the business I think is just is like you know finding the right people and and working through some of those challenges hiring like all that stuff that's what I I really do love that stuff so but it can be challenging for sure and you're right like being an early stage brand you don't always have the I mean you really got to find people who believe in the dream let's just say <laughs> at that stage yeah totally yeah one time at a on a panel when I was involved in my professional association AIGA and I was on this panel of chapter presidents and someone in the group just said like, you know, what's been your favorite and least favorite thing about like being president of the chapter? And my answer was the people (laughs) because when you have great people, everything just goes so smoothly and it's amazing and you're collaborative and you're all psyched and you're all heading in the right direction. But when there's anyone on the team that's not feeling it and kind of dragging people down and whatever, and you got to deal with those kind of things and, especially when you're leading a volunteer thing, like a professional association yeah. kind of local chapter, it can just drain on you and make your job so much more difficult. Cause you just want to like do cool stuff and make magic yeah. happen. And then yeah. you know, some people just aren't there for it and they drag the whole team down. And, and then as the president or, you know, the entrepreneur, the leader, yeah. the CEO, whatever, you've got to deal with it. Right. But when it's all clicking, it's the most amazing thing in the world. <laughs> I know. And I think it is. That's why, I mean, they always, there's a saying of like, hire slow, fire fast. And I definitely feel that. I mean, you know, I've had my own fair share of <laughs> hiring challenges and, you know, things that have not worked out or maybe like things that, you know, were, I think looking back, like things that weren't a right culture fit for the organization, but, and it's hard to bounce back from those things. And it's also hard to, you know, it is people. So it's like, we're all... We're worried about each other's well-being, but at the same time, it's like you got to do what's best for as the president or as the entrepreneur or the CEO. Like you got to do what's best for the kind of business and or the you know the entity that you're serving. And so I think it's it's only a disservice if you know if you don't kind of follow your gut about making sure the culture is protected. Because at the end of the day, it's like you know we want to create something that people are really who I mean, especially when you're at the stage that Pulp Pantry's at today, it's like people need to be a hundred percent bought in because it is all hands on deck and every person that we have in place is, you know, a resource that we can't afford to like be operating at seventy five percent capacity or whatnot. It's like it's it's all go time, baby. So we we all gotta be all in. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Cool. So let's fast forward to the present now. Now that you're about seven years in, kind of where's your focus at right now? I think for where the business is today, I mean, we've got some amazing retail partners. We're in, you know, about 600 to 700 doors right now, looking to probably grow that to over a thousand by the end of the year. And so for me, it's really figuring out, you know, we're mostly on the West Coast. It's truly, honestly, figuring out how do we connect this new product to, the consumers that we're looking to talk to who care about sustainability. And so a lot of that is just looking at our marketing programs and, you know, how we're supporting our retail doors in order to enhance kind of the like sampling opportunities or trial and discovery that's happening in stores. And there's a lot of ways to do that nowadays. Obviously, like we have so many digital tools at our hands. There's so many ways like to tap into kind of these networks of essentially consumers who shop at these different retailers, like you know, doing either our own targeting and segmenting or working with, you know, third parties that have kind of amassed sampling or consumer base. So it's really just about getting the word out there about the brand because I think we have amazing retail partners. I'm not really, you know, looking to expand that beyond the West Coast right now. And for us, it's just proving out that like we really have something here that consumers are grabbing onto and proving out that like we know how to support our retail doors so that we can start taking on more, more after that. But yeah. Yeah, that's a good strategy from what I've been reading in the book, Ramping Your Brand, which talks about some of the kind of pitfalls that brands fall into when they're trying to like grow too fast if they don't have the cash flow to support that, right? If you're trying to go national from day one with retail doors, then how are you supporting them? And how are you making sure that like you're driving sales in each region and increasing your velocity and so on and so forth? Yeah. So kind of focusing, like you said, on the kind of West Coast region and making sure you're really supporting those retailers so that you've got the right numbers and you know how it all works so that when you do kind of take the next step of scale, you've already got the formula and you've got the numbers behind you to prove that your products are moving. Exactly. That's all, you know, the strategy is definitely like deep and narrow. You got to go really deep in a couple you know, choose a few regions that you can really support hands more hands-on. And so for us being on the West Coast, 
Like we were able to hire and train brand ambassadors in every city that we're we're launching in and you know get representatives out in the field, out in the retailers doing demos, doing field marketing. So that's been really important to us for sure. Yeah, nice. So does anything stand out if I were to ask you like what your single best decision to date has been? Because <laughs> I know as an entrepreneur, you're constantly like you're making 50 decisions a day, but, but what's some kind of wisdom you could pass on to other entrepreneurs? I feel like, I mean, you know, there's definitely been... I would say the biggest, like, yes, thank goodness I did that. It's always about, I mean, applying, even when you feel like you're not, I think there's, you know, the stats about how, especially I think a lot of women struggle with this. It's like you feel underqualified for something. And so you kind of hold off on applying to this grant, like this opportunity for me, in my case, it's been a lot of grant opportunities or things like Shark Tank, which, you know, I told you we're, we're airing on, <laughs> on May 6th, which will probably yeah. be after this episode goes live. And I'm allowed to say that we're airing by the way, so I won't get in trouble, but Great. things like that, where it's just, <laughs> it can be really intimidating to put yourself out there and, you know, to apply to that opportunity. But at the end of the day, like I always kind of, I have to squash that voice inside of me. That's just like, Oh, you're not there yet. They're looking for, you know, whether it's like, they're looking for a brand that has higher revenue or blah, 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 blah. And you know, the list goes on. But I think a lot of the times, like you can bend the rules and you can bend the rules because of, I think, you know, a lot of people are willing to obviously stretch and be flexible when they're excited or, or passionate about something too. So I would say it's just, you know, there's been a couple opportunities recently that I just feel like, like Shark Tank, you know, were really intimidating and scary to go through all the motions to get to that final stage. But at the end of the day, it's like, hopefully, you know, the reward has always been greater, I think, than that initial risk. And so, yeah, it's, I think for me and my most proud accomplishments have always been just when I've kind of been able to squash that little voice of doubt and kind of plow forward. And it's just something that it's a continual practice, you know, squashing the voice of doubt. I think any of us as entrepreneurs, (laughs) we always, you always struggle with that imposter syndrome and the voice inside of you that's like, just wants to tear you down. I don't know why that's such a human thing. I'm like, why do we all have to go through this? This is horrible, you know? (laughs) But I think learning to work Again, like we're learning to work with just what is in all of us as human nature and start to kind of train your mind, hopefully to not be shooting yourself in the foot. That's really, (laughs) I feel like I've grown a lot in that department, at least as a person. And I think that's been a great part of the journey and process. Yeah, that makes sense. Not trying to avoid limiting yourself based on all the fears. And, and my theory about that is like, why do we always have those voices in our minds? Like trying to hold us back is it's just like from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, we're a pretty young species and in the not so distant future, we were all kind of hunter gatherer kind yeah. of or, or whatever type of people. And if you tried to do something crazy and broke your leg or got eaten by a tiger or whatever, that's it. Yeah, you know, you're done. So, so they're just, it was, so I think we were trained to just be super firing on all senses of being aware of our environment and looking for any risk. And when you're about to go take some business risk now in this modern day environment where it's not that scary in the end, you're not going to get yeah. eaten by a tiger. Or if you do fall off that podium, your friends are going to lift you up and you get to try again the next day. But our brains are still wired as though like this lion is chasing us, right? So I think these these fears and things bubble up in our mind trying to help us avoid risk. But really in today's society, you kind of have to lean into that risk and lean into those fears. And it's, so you're constantly battling your biology yeah. <laughs> to try to be a successful entrepreneur. I mean, I could be completely wrong about this, which would be really embarrassing, but we can fact check. I'll fact check myself later. But I feel like they've <laughs> kind of done some science, some work to like prove that psychological pathways that are created throughout our life are actually passed on to our kin in a lot of ways. And so I oh, feel yeah. like you know, there's, I mean, I, what I, my hope is, is that all of us, you know, as our 22,000s, late 2000s selves are going to, you know, keep putting in the practice of, I think, you know, there's, I mean, mental health is just such an issue in our communities today. And I'm just like, I hope that we can develop practices and whatnot to, to help that situation and hopefully pass along less of those fear-based mentalities into, into the next generations to come. So let's all make that a collective, <laughs> collective goal. Yeah. Yeah. I think in the meantime, it's just about having support communities that can remind yes. you you're not alone. And yet, yes, we all have those same fears and you don't have to listen to them. And, you know, it's the scary thing that's 
that's freaking you out right now is in the end really not that scary and and to just go do for it we got you you know like so yeah. having those kind of communities but eventually evolution maybe will catch up and realize that we're yeah. not <laughs> living like in constant fear of being eaten um, yes. anymore and that, exactly. that we can kind of move on move on but yeah. i think it'll take some time but of course like you said not only your biology that maybe passes on but then also the way you parent your kids or the way you coach them the youth and and let them know that they can lean into what they're passionate yeah. about and they can take risks and they can go out and try to do really big things i think are powerful like the the way the inconvenient truth infl- pushed you yeah. down the sustainability path like there probably already are great documentaries on like ignoring those voices in your head don't limit yourself just go and go and do what you're meant to do I would say that's the one thing I do lament about. Like you get so deep in a hole, like I'm so deep in a pantry hole, you know, where I'm like, can't, (laughs) I don't have the capacity, mental capacity almost I feel sometimes for, you know, what used to really be exposure to the big ideas and expose. I mean, I, you know, obviously I, in the community of entrepreneurship, like there are a lot of people doing amazing things, but I think it was so important early on to be exposed to big ideas and big thinking and big problems with big solutions and those kinds of things I think help to cultivate at least that like dreamer mindset that I think can be so helpful when starting, you know, an entrepreneurial venture and just not, again, like we're talking about not limiting yourself and really seeing the world of possibilities and being able to feel like, oh, I can go after some of these opportunities. But yeah, I like that's, I think that's a good tie-in of just, you know, it is constant work and practice to like expose yourself and feel capable of taking on kind of the big dreams that each of us have. So, but it's really important to stay in touch with that. I think through, as we go about our adult lives where it becomes a little bit, I think it gets harder every year to connect back to that, you know, childlike curiosity. Yeah, it takes a little, a little bit of work. You know, and that's part of the reason I do this is force myself to be connecting with people who are doing awesome things and, and hear what they're up to and get that inspiration and share it out with others who might need some of those reminders or might need to see that other people have been down this path and have figured it out. And if we can all kind of share that wisdom and, and support each other through things like this podcast or the online community we're trying to build or classes or workshops or, you know, Mm -hmm. support groups or, you know, whatever, I think that we'll be able to get further faster together because we'll be able to avoid a lot of those pitfalls. We'll be able to limit those, um, fears and stuff in our mind and kind of just push forward and do the necessary work to change the world. The knowledge sharing. Exactly. I think it's, that's super important. Speaking of changing the world. So your pulp is obviously part of the upcycled food movement and that movement is just exploding right now. Mm -hmm. Um, so because of the growth and upcycling, like how does that influence the future for pulp? Like right now you have your pulp chips solving obviously the pulp problem from the juicing industry or other kind of industries that waste pulp. There's so many other things you could be doing. Do you feel like you'll kind of expand? Do you think you'll stick to chips? Do you think you'll stay in pulp? Do you think like, like what's your kind of plan moving forward as this movement grows? I think it's been amazing. I was actually just talking to a like product designer about this because we want to, we're thinking about collaborating on whatever the next product opportunity is. And I feel like, you know, for me, it's been, obviously starting in pulp and really being more focused on building one product line. I mean, people see kind of the momentum and what's happening in the space and you start to get more inbound interest. I think from, you know, I've, I've had a ton of suppliers reach out to me with a byproduct or, you know, waste stream that they're like, we would love to be doing something better with this. Can you get involved or can we, you know, can we work on something together? And so a lot of, it's really opened my eyes to what's out there. And so I'm constantly, I have a list of like, I want to say, you know, 50 or so product ideas that are just waiting to be uncovered. And it's really, for me, like when I think about the next product opportunity, it is definitely looking in. I mean, we're still at a place where we could take on, I mean, we aren't even fulfilling the full opportunity with just two juicery partners and the waste that they have. So there is so much room for growth for the pulp chips line. But when I think about like what we want to do next, I mean, it's definitely tackling different categories of the grocery store. And again, it's just bringing an offering to the forefront that puts fruits, vegetables, and fiber kind of at the at the front of the ingredient and nutritional panel, but also utilizes that upcycled feedstock. So, you know, kind of having that mission that is 
both tying in with the sustainability aspects, but also offering consumers a better for you you product as well. And it's definitely looking at different feedstocks and saying, you know, what are some of the the bigger opportunities out there to have a you know impactful partnership with some of these suppliers that are struggling with a waste issue. So. Yeah, that's a really, I mean, I have no specifics to share yet because definitely, you know, a lot of things that I'm just like sitting on, but I feel like we'll go after whatever we think is the biggest, you know, category opportunity and just try to offer something that's super innovative for people to sink their teeth into literally. Yeah. And that's one of the hard things being more on the visionary entrepreneur side is there's all these possible paths forward. Yeah. All of these supply chains or material streams you could be working on, all these products you could be developing, and all these other businesses, maybe even outside of pulp that you could be starting yeah. to make an impact. And and it's hard sometimes to maintain that focus over the years as a more visionary kind of entrepreneur. But just as you stated, even with just your current four SKUs or whatever, maybe add a couple more so that retailers have like some selection of which ones to choose. But like, even with just the chips, let's say you could keep scaling that and scaling that and scaling that until you're global. And you're like somehow offsetting 20 or 30% of all the juicery (laughs) pulp that's out there that's going to waste, right? You could just hyper-focus on that and scale the crap out of it. But then, you know, like you said, there's all these other categories and there's always the, at least for me, like the what if in the back of your mind of, yeah, these chips are doing great, but what if there's a different product that would do even yeah. better, like, you know, be even more compelling to consumers or even use more of the kind of pulp that's currently going to exactly. waste. And, and so know. there's just, I think that's part of the challenge is just staying focused when there's so many opportunities and so many options that you could pursue. It's so true. It's such a challenge to keep your head down and focus. But I liked the ramping your brand book that you mentioned, because I think one of the concepts in there is, you know, focusing on your one product opportunity until you get to like, you know, some level of sales volume where you really truly can support a second product opportunity being taken on. Because I think it is really, it's super challenging to build. I mean, there's inventory, there's, you know, R&D costs and everything. And so for a brand at an early stage to, you know, get to spread thin across multiple products. I mean, it uses, it drains a ton of resources. And so I'm trying to force myself to to be focused along the way just for, I mean, honestly, for survival's sake in a lot of senses too. So you've got to be smart about it yeah. for sure. Totally. It's tough to take my own advice here because, you know, I do lots of different things that like, whereas if I just hyper-focused on the thing that works and the thing that I could scale, it'd be better business model. But then, you know, part of the joy of running your own business or being an entrepreneur is you get to satisfy some of that curiosity and kind of chase some of those opportunities and test, test things out, see what works, what doesn't work. And you know what, you know, some things aren't going to work and kind of fail forward and, and make those experiments. But again, from a pure business strategy standpoint, like just scaling what's working is a really efficient, great way of growing the business, you know, but it's hard not to jump on category trends or launch new products or try to solve this other problem, et cetera. So anyway, that's, yeah. Exactly. I imagine there's a lot of other entrepreneurs that struggle with that, but um, yeah, staying focused is one of the things I, advice I try to give to people, but it's not always easy to follow it, you know, like no. even for myself. <laughs> no. I, I agree completely. So speaking of which, as we wrap up this convo, any other kind of advice come to mind that you would like to pass on to other entrepreneurs looking to follow in your footsteps? Man, I think definitely it is taking kind of the steps. I think taking the leap, it's always something that will pay off. I feel like the advice that I would have for someone just starting out is just asking for help along the way. And I think that's just such a muscle that we all need to exercise, but there are so many people out there you know, who have the resources and access to information that I think can just give you so many legs up. So kind of what we were talking about earlier, it's just, you know, I did so many things backwards that knowing what I know today, (laughs) I think I would have done it completely differently. So I feel like backing up and going back to my journey and what I would say to myself just starting out is, you know, have a bit more, maybe have a bit more courage to, yeah, ask for help and, and not be so, I think, close to the chest with your baby. And I think all of us as, you know, early entrepreneurs, we 
have an idea and it's almost too big and scary to share with others or, you know, where we don't, it's not even asking for feedback, but it's really just, yeah, asking for help from people who are in the industry, who can point you in the right direction, who know the good consultants, who know the good brokers, who know the good distributors, who know the great manufacturers. Like, I think it'll just, it saves so much time and energy and and can lead to some great relationships. So I think that would be my advice. Nice. That's a good one. And I mean, it kind of reminiscent to I'm not a super spiritual person or anything, but like the, what people say about just putting it out into the universe, you know, where it's yeah. like, what I totally believe about that is until you put something out there and say, Hey, this is the thing I'm working on. Like anyone have any advice or, or thoughts or whatever, like until you put that out there, it's just in your head. Right. But as soon as you put it out there, lots of people are going to want to help you and you're going to make yes. connections. You're going to get resources. You're going to get advice. You're going to get so much stuff that you wouldn't have got if you just kept it in your head or like as a little note on your to-do list. So part of the asking for help is just kind of making some of your current struggles public so that you invite other people in to help you out. And I think that's part of the, you know, ask the universe and, and just kind of put it out there because once it's out there, you'll be surprised that there's lots of people who are eager and excited to help you along your journey. Yeah. You just got to let them know where you need help. <laughs> I think that's a great point. And I actually like a recent story that kind of ties in with that is just, I have one retailer that I'm obsessed with getting into. I'm like, I need <laughs> this is the last retailer I care about getting into and I'm done with just what we have currently. And then, you know, we can focus and whatever. But I've been saying to everyone, whenever anyone's like, what's the next step? I'm like, I'm just dying to get into this one retailer. And sure enough, every time that I've had that conversation, you know, there's been some other like either someone knows the buyer directly and they're like, I'm going to bring you up in my next meeting or it just, it's really interesting. I think to see that, like, especially when you're focused on, on what is the most important next thing that you have to do, how much more people can get involved. I think it's really hard as an early entrepreneur too, to like understand what do I need? What's the next step? And the one thing that I need to focus on right now, because you have so many things that you feel like you're, you have to do at any moment. But that's been a good thing for me too. It's like when I'm asking for help, just being super direct and super like specific about what it is that yeah. I'm looking for help with because it only accelerates the pace at which people can actually do things to activate on kind of what that ask is. So I think you're totally right. Putting it out in the universe and saying it out loud as many times as possible, like you just never know what'll happen or what'll come of it. And we're such a connected totally. world nowadays. So chances are someone that you're meeting or talking to along the way is going to know someone who knows someone who knows someone and it, it'll happen yeah. like that. So I think that's great. Hey, that buyer might be listening to this episode yeah. once it publishes. So <laughs> just let them know you're looking for them and uh, maybe they'll reach out. Yes. Love it. Cool. Well, that's awesome. Thanks for taking a little time out of your day to share your story and kind of what you're up to and some of the things that have kind of inspired you or helped you focus or different advice along the way. I appreciate what you're doing, helping solve the food waste problem and coming up with tasty, nutritious ways to do so. I think, you know, if you can make something that people want and it happens to make a difference, that's the best thing in the world. So I appreciate what you're doing and thanks for coming on the show to kind of share your story with us. Thank you. Thank you, Gage. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Caitlin or Pulp Pantry, go to pulppantry.com. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback. So send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com.